0: Let's get to God's word. Thank you, Heavenly Father. There is no one like you, and there's none beside you. You are infinite, so there's only room for you. Thank you, Lord, that in your mercy you snatched us from the flames, and in your grace you would call us to know you. Lord, I pray that our eyes aren't just on the text this morning. And our eyes are certainly not on the speaker. But every eye and every heart and every ear is turned towards you. Because only you are worthy. Oh Lord, I am so unworthy. What an honor and a privilege it would be to stand in the water and point at you. And say you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let that be our focus this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Well, let us open God's word this morning. I don't want to derail us. I was actually a little concerned of using this opening analogy, but I hope that you can hear the heart of it. One of the most wicked and sick things going on right now is the propagation of Of abortion, the celebration of abortion. For people to call a child a lump of cells who is only an inch from oxygen, that we can see through ultrasounds, that sees light through its mother's belly, that has dreams, that feels pain, that recognizes its mother's voice. To call that a lump of cells and on the chopping block of decision is sick. And it takes a blindness to believe that. And we have to wrap our minds around the fact that the only way that we can be so blind is to have self-chosen blindness. To completely reject, to already have our minds made up. This is what I'm going to believe. And no matter the witnesses, no matter the proofs, I've already decided this is my belief. This is where I stand. But there is something that's even worse. And it's hell. And there's something else that's on the chopping block. And it's worthy to be there. And it's us. Because every one of us often will choose a self-willing blindness for the sake of our own self-worship. Thank God for Jesus who has snatched us from the fire. I want to make sure that our attention is exactly where Jesus wants it this morning. I'm going to read through our text But I'm going to go ahead and highlight the whole focus, the whole point. We're looking at John chapter 5 and verse 34 is our focus. And I don't want to get derailed or lose focus as we're expositing through our text this morning. It is not that the testimony that I receive is from man. Jesus says, but I say these things that you may be saved. Who is Jesus talking to right now? He's not talking to the innocent children. He's not talking to his disciples. He's not talking to the lame man that he just healed. Right now, he's looking in the faces and in the eyes of the very people that, in verse 28, say they're plotting his death. And he's looking at them, and out of his great grace and his love that we can't even understand, he's saying, I'm saying these things. I'm laying out witnesses for you. I'm bringing charges against your heart For the very sake that you might be saved. What kind of God is that? That looks the executioners, the accusers in the face. And begs for them to lose their spiritual blindness. Jesus has healed the lame man. And the lame man ironically throws Jesus under the bus for it. But it catalyzes this conversation with the Jewish leaders. And this morning we're unpacking the end of that conversation. And Jesus is going to call three witnesses to his identity. This claim that he has sent from the Father. And then he is going to make three charges. Three indictments against them. And he's going to call a surprise witness to the stand. All so that they might... Believe. You all ready for this? John chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 30. Jesus is speaking and he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you might be saved. John, he was a burning and a shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice in his light for a little while. But the testimony that I have is greater than John for the works that the father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the father has sent me. And the father who sent me, has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not Have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe in me. For he wrote of me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Amen. 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 In Jesus' closing remarks, three witnesses, three indictments, and a surprise witness. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus isn't saying that he lacks power. He doesn't act unilaterally. He walks in perfect step with the Father. He and the Father are in harmony with the rhythm of his Father's will and purpose. And so his judgments are just. He humbly submits himself to the Father, to the Father's will, to the Father's purposes, to the Father's works. Is Jesus sent by the Father? Verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus isn't saying that his witness is unreliable. Actually, a few chapters from now, he's going to stand witness to himself. But he's saying that he understands the Jewish system of law. And you can't bear witness to yourself. That's not a sufficient testimony. But instead, Jewish law requires two to three witnesses. So Jesus is going to bring three. Some commentators actually find six, four to six witnesses in these, in these sections. So he's going to bring witnesses to testify that he is sent from the Father. And he's going to appeal to number one, verbal testimony from man, two, divine testimony from God, and three, prophetic testimony from the scriptures. Verse 32, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Jesus notes that he has a star witness coming. Not yet, but the star witness is about to take the stand. But he's going to begin with the most explicit testimony, one that you just can't ignore. Because it's spoken in human words for human ears to understand. This is the verbal testimony of John the Baptist. Verse 33. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Back in chapter 1, the Pharisees had sent messengers to John. And they asked him, John, who are you? Why are you here? What's the purpose of your ministry? And he responds with our reading this morning. Verse 29 of chapter 1. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said— Behold the Lamb of God. There he is. He takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John, check the words, bore witness. This is Jesus' first witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on who? On Jesus. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Verse 34. Jesus continues, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John is awesome. And many people in the crowd listening revered John as a prophet. In fact, he was the first prophetic word of God in 400 years. And so he had quite a following of people that revered him and respected him. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to appeal to human testimony, to human language, to human words, so that those of you who respect John That you might also believe John's witness and be saved. Verse 35, John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while, for a little while, in his light. Remember, he's talking to the Pharisees right now, he's talking to the Sadducees, the religious leaders. And I love how John gives witness to Jesus, and then Jesus in turn gives witness back to John. What what a great thing! John was awesome. Later, Jesus says, John was the greatest man. He was the greatest prophet. And so he gives witness to John. John is a burning lamp. And for a little while, he walked in his light. When there was a season of darkness, 400 years of darkness, John brought light. And yet he was just a lamp. Here in a few chapters, Jesus is going to say, and I am the light, the very essence of light itself. And then Jesus throws a little jab in. And you are willing to walk in his light. For a little while. Until John started saying things that were really uncomfortable, really convicting. You know, like he started asking Jews to be saved as if they needed to be, as if they needed to repent. He calls out Herod and gets thrown in jail. You walked in his light for a little while, but when things got difficult, yeah, you, you punched out. Because if you would believe John's witness, you'd believe me. So the fact that you don't means that you don't even believe in John's witness anymore. The second witness that Jesus will call is the miraculous testimony of the Father. So we have a verbal human witness, John the Baptist. And the second is the miracles and the works of the divine Father. Verse 36 to the first half of verse 37. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. Grab the words to accomplish. That's going to get important in a second. The very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So Jesus is calling his star witness. Here's one you can't deny. You can't deny the Father and the miraculous power that is on display. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. But he says, no one can do the things that you're doing unless you're from God. Later, it says that in chapter 7, some actually come to salvation because of the miraculous works that Jesus does. And Jesus does many, 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 many. Throughout the Gospels, we have at least 36 specific ones pointed out. Plus, John closes his book saying that there's so many, we couldn't even get them in all the books in the world. The very works that the Father does that no one else can do, that Jesus can walk on the water, echoing Job where God walks upon the waves. When Jesus turns water into wine, where he heals a lame man, where he opens the eyes of the blind, which no prophet in the Old Testament ever did. But it promised. Isaiah promised that God would open the eyes of the blind. And so Jesus takes mud and spit and he opens the eyes of the blind. The very works that Jesus is doing are the power of the Father. Father. So it's the miracles, but also the father gives testimony even verbally. Remember in the synoptic gospels, Jesus is baptized and what happens? The spirit descends on Jesus and they hear the father's voice from heaven. This, 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 this. Here I hear, this is my son. I love him. This is my beloved son. I'm so pleased with him. Everyone turn around. Look, this is my, I love him so much. And then again at the transfiguration, the father did the same thing. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The father gives verbal witness. The father gives miraculous witness. And then those works to accomplish. The Greek word to accomplish actually means to make perfect or make complete. So this actually includes all the works of Jesus's ministry. Works like recruiting the 12 disciples. Witnessing and preaching in the towns, going to the cross, resurrecting. These are the complete and perfect works of the Father in human history for us, which brings so much weight to Jesus' last words that John records it is. It's finished. And that word finished is the same root word as to accomplish. It's finished. The Father's finished works are done. Wow. So Jesus has the verbal testimony of a man. He has the miraculous testimony of the divine. And third, he has the prophetic testimony of the scriptures. Verse 37, the second half through verse 38, it talks about the Father I don't want you to miss this. I almost got ahead of myself. This is powerful. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. Abiding meaning to dwell or to live in. His word doesn't live in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on, Dom. Didn't you just say that they heard his, the father's voice, you know, at the baptism? Pssh. The transfiguration. Didn't they hear the father's voice? But that's not the point that Jesus is making here. The key to understanding this verse is that second half. You do not believe the one he has sent. Jesus is saying that they know as much about the father. As someone they have never seen. And never heard before. The people that should know the most. That spend their life studying the scriptures. They don't know the father at all. That would like be, be like me throwing out my wife's love letter because I don't recognize her handwriting. That, w- that would mean that I know almost nothing about her. We have no relationship if I can't even recognize my wife's handwriting. Right in front of them. Standing right in front of them. Jesus is the word. Jesus tells his apostles, if you've seen me... You've seen the father. What's his accusation here? You've never heard his voice. You've never seen him. His word doesn't live in you. There was a man in Michigan and he bought a farm. No, he didn't die. He bought a farm. And in front, up on the front patio, there was a chunk of rock, a 22 pound chunk of rock. And the previous owner of the farm, had been using this chunk of rock to hold the screen door open since the 1930s. And out of curiosity, the guy drags this 22-pound rock over to the nearby university and has it analyzed. And it turns out it was an authentic meteorite worth over $100,000. And since the 1930s, this old farmer had been using it as a doorstop because he didn't have the knowledge to recognize what's right in front of him, that he passed by every day. And Jesus is looking at these guys and he's saying, you're not seeing it. You're willfully blind. You're passing by the father himself. Yeah, you're hearing my voice. You should be hearing the father's voice. You're seeing the very image of the father and you're blind. Therefore, his word isn't even in you. You're missing it entirely. You're walking past the most valuable thing. Where'd you come from? You're walking past the most valuable thing. Life itself is in front of you. So we have the word of man. We have the word of God. And three, we have the prophetic testimony to the scriptures. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse. There's that word. Refuse. Willful blindness. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. You know how Proverbs defines a fool? It says that you can hit a fool a hundred times and he'll still be a fool, a fool. You can grind him like grain and he'll still be a fool. Why? Why? Because it is willful, intentional foolishness. You refuse to come. Instead, you search the scriptures like you're going to have life from them. There's an old rabbinic saying this is the kind of things that they would tell each other He that has the words of the law has eternal life. And yet, they miss the very one the scriptures are pointing to. They can't have eternal life from head knowledge. That's like saying that you can ride a bike because you read a Wikipedia page on bicycles. No, the scriptures are pointing to something that's tangible, that's real, and it's Jesus. The condemning irony here is that they would analyze every phrase, every word, and they would study down to the letter where even the letters had individual meaning, and yet it's futile because the Old Testament doesn't have an ending. Have you actually ever read through the Old Testament? Please tell me you've read through the Old Testament. When you get to the end, you're like, and the people are left in sin, willful, intentional sin. The prophetic word of God has ended. You get to the end and it's just like this, the worst to be continued of all time. Because the Old Testament points past itself. It is not a means unto its own end. It's pointing past itself to this coming Messiah. It's pointing to Jesus. We have to have the New Testament. We have to have the word of Jesus to fulfill what God was doing all this time. The Old Testament is like this incomplete puzzle. And way back beginning in Genesis chapter three, and I crush the head of the tempter through the seed of Eve, this descendant, who's going to crush the tempter, but the tempter is going to get some blows in himself. And beginning there, God begins to piece together this puzzle. And with every piece, we see the very color of hope. And we see the design of a saving mission for our souls. But the pieces come together, not for a complete puzzle, but for a frame. And it leaves this strangely shaped hole in the middle. And that hole is like a fingerprint that only one in all of human history could ever fill until Jesus walks on the scene and John the Baptist points at him and says, There he is! Behold, there's the Lamb of God! He's the one the Old Testament's been talking about. I'm the voice crying in the wilderness to point to him. Only he is the crowning center of all Scripture. He's the one it's all about. Men and women of God, men and women who might not be of God, how do you treat Scripture? Are you looking through Scripture for a history lesson? Are you looking through Scripture to, like, oh, I'm really smart? Do you go to Scripture because you want to fit what everybody else in our religious circles are doing? Do you go to Scripture because you want some sort of like futuristic crystal ball prophecy? Are you going to Scripture because you just need another fortune cookie blurb in your life? How and why do you go to Scripture? Do you go to Scripture to search for the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? What's your reason for going to Scripture? Everywhere from Genesis to Revelation, you should see Jesus— I love what Alistair Begg says, and I'll try not to say it with his accent because that would be embarrassing. Alistair Begg says that we see Jesus prophesied in the Old Testament. And we see Jesus revealed in the Gospels. And Jesus is preached in Acts. Jesus is explained in the epistles. And in Revelation, Jesus is expected. The scriptures point to Jesus. And now Jesus has presented his three witnesses. And he is going to leave being the defendant. Take off that hat. And he's going to put on the hat of prosecutor. And he is no longer making this this court session that he's sort of creating about himself. He is now putting them on trial. And he's going to bring three charges. Convicting, condemning charges against them. But don't forget. The reason Jesus is bringing witnesses The reason that Jesus is being a good doctor and giving an honest diagnosis of coming death is so that they may be saved out of his great love and grace. Who is like our God? Let's get back to the text. Verse 41. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Jesus didn't seek human recognition. Here in verse 44, he's going to say, but you guys, you seek human recognition Jesus is giving his first charge. They have no love for God in them. The most holy people anywhere parading themselves actually have no love of God at all. They're much more concerned with the love of people. Whoa, what a condemning charge. Jesus is actually echoing Isaiah and he's comparing them to the people Isaiah is talking to. Isaiah 29, 13, This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. The commentator William Barclay wrote about these religious leaders saying, they did not really love God. They loved their own ideas of God. I'm going to create this God. I'm going to love him. And I'm going to call it that God. Man, the root problem of these religious leaders is, Comes down to the fact, and they reject Jesus for the fact that they actually don't love God. They've been loving the person in the mirror this whole time. Verse 43 I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. Here's our second charge one, you don't love God, and number two, you don't receive the one he sent. Parcel not received, returned to sender. Jesus speaks of the irony that he comes in the Father's name, offering witnesses, and they won't receive him, and yet they will quickly turn and receive someone who comes in their own name. Jewish historians have found up to 64 false messiahs that Jewish people have thrown their lot in with. The most famous, maybe infamous is the right word, his name was Simon bar Kokhba. I said that with a Jewish tone. Simon Bar Kokhba. And Kokhba actually means son of a star, which is the label put on him, a messianic label put on him. And in about a hundred years after Jesus lived, Rome started building a temple to Jupiter on top of the old temple mount. They outlawed circumcision and they set up their own little Roman colony in Israel and Simon began a rebellion against Rome. And it was a bloody, awful rebellion. The emperor Hadrian himself came to engage in this battle. Simon died, and by the time Hadrian wiped out everybody, I want to make sure I get my numbers right, 850,000 people died as war casualties, not even including those who died of sickness and disease and starvation afterwards. All the religious leaders threw in their hat with a man who proclaimed himself. And it came to devastating ends. In fact, Adrian Hadrian, Emperor Hadrian, went through and wiped out and executed as many Jews as he could find, except for those who escaped. And then he barred Jerusalem from any Jews ever coming back in. This was the end of the Jewish nation. And it came under a false Messiah who came under his own name, who the Jews gladly followed because they were willing to go fight Rome when Jesus came so they might have life. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? So there are charges. You don't love God. You don't receive the one he sent. And they aren't even interested in pleasing God. They have no interest in receiving glory, recognition, or favor from God. They only want glory, recognition, and favor from each other. One commentator reads, Emotional dependence on the praise of others incapacitates a person from giving genuine praise to God. Authentic praise of God transcends the boundaries of self-esteem. Our desire for glory must be drowned By our desire to please God. When we're at work, who's getting the favor? Who's getting the recognition? It's got to be God. When we're with our families, who's getting the favor? Who's getting the recognition? It has to be God. Chariots of Fire made me aware of one of the coolest guys in history, in my opinion. The missionary, Eric Little, who happened to run And he says it plainly, why he runs. He says, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. He was a missionary and died on the mission field for God's pleasure. And he ran in the Olympics for God's pleasure. A Christian is held accountable to nothing less that we do everything for God's pleasure. Jesus has turned the table. The religious leaders are on trial they do not love God. They do not receive him. And they don't even care to please God. And then Jesus steps out of the way. In the same way that Jesus says, I don't bring witnesses, or I'm not going to witness to myself. Jesus also says, I'm bringing a witness, a surprise witness. And he's going to be the one that accuses you, not even me. Chapter 5, verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, and it's Moses on whom you have set your hope. This is like shocker. This is like, what? No, no, not Moses. Surely not Moses. You know, they actually believed from extra biblical books, books that are not in the Bible, they believed that Moses was currently, presently interceding for them and praying for them while in heaven. He was their mother Mary. Mary. They even believed that Moses would be presiding as their arbiter when they come to final judgment. And Jesus, what did he say? What did Ben read last week? Jesus says, no, I'm going to be the one who judges. Heaven, hell. I'm the one sent by the father to judge. And guess what? Moses, where was he on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses, he stands with me, buddy. Your accuser is Moses himself. John 5, 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses' writings attest to Jesus. From beginning to end in the Torah, they attest to him. And the final blow against the Pharisees right here is that they don't even believe the product they're selling. I want to say that again. They don't even believe the product they're selling. We're searching the scriptures for life. Everyone has to line up with these scriptures. But the scriptures attest to the Jesus that they are willingly blind, blinding themselves too. Therefore, they reject the very scriptures that point at Jesus. So they don't even believe the scriptures they're selling. Isn't that amazing? Moses stands against you. Moses accuses you. Before God, these hypocritical, self-righteous men stand accused and they have no excuse. There are three witnesses. Let's think about these witnesses. The miracles are not a singular witness. Every one of them stand individually testifying on behalf of who Jesus is. The prophets in the scriptures are not a single witness. No. Every one of the prophets joins a chorus to harmonize the praises of the one that God is sending. This is not three witnesses. This is a multitude of witnesses. Jesus is presenting to them a multitude, a chorus, shouting that he is the son of God. And then he brings accusation against them. You're cancerous. And the only way that you can be saved, the only physician that's going to make a difference in your life, is if you'll just lay under my knife. And they choose willful blindness. He has an ironclad defense for his, for his identity. And there's another court case. There's another court case. There's another prosecution. And this one hits a lot closer to home. The witnesses against the defendant are plentiful. And the evidence is condemning. It is a mountain of evidence. The verdict is passed from the highest seat. And the defendant has been proven guilty a hundred times over and sentenced to death. And all that remains for the prisoner is to look from the inside of his bars, waiting for the day of his execution, of her execution. And if you haven't made Jesus the Lord of your life, that's you. Every day of your life is looking at the inside of bars, waiting for the end. But there's a multitude of witnesses That there is one who is prepared, if you'll only cry out to him, to snatch you, to stand in your stead. Will you believe John's testimony? Will you believe the Father's testimony, the miracles that Jesus did? Will you believe the scriptures that are all prophetically fulfilled? Yeah. But there's even more. We stand on the other side of resurrection. Will you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Seen. People saw, 500 people saw Jesus afterwards. A handful of them sat down and wrote journals about it. Scripture in Romans says that our own conscience testifies to Him. In Romans 1, it says that creation itself testifies to Him. We have a multitude of witnesses testifying to Jesus. Will you believe? William Dixon William Dixon was a man who lost his wife and child in childbirth. And he aged into middle age never remarrying reclusive from society and just getting more gruff. And one day an old lady and a little boy moved in down the street. The old lady really didn't like this kid very much. He was actually her grandson, her own daughter had died. And for the most part, she ignored him. She stuck him up in the attic for most of the time. And old Will Dixon one day smelled the smoke. And when he went out on his porch, he saw the house on fire down the street. And the old woman was being carried out nearly lifeless. And the boy was in the attic window screaming. He woke up and there were flames in his bedroom. And when he's looking down, he's looking at the crowd that's gathering below. And because the staircase had already burned away, the gathering crowd below has nothing but blank expressions to look back at his cries for help. And William Dixon yells that they are cowards as he pushes through. And he grabs a hold of the iron railing on the side of the house and scales the wall. Grabbing the boy in his right hand and using his left hand brings the boy unscathed to safety. But his hands were permanently, especially his left hand, permanently scarred because that iron pipe had been heated by the flames. The next day, the old lady died. And a man in the society, a wealthy man, a man of good reputation, Proposed that instead of sending the kid to the workhouses to set him up for adoption. In fact, he wanted a a ruling so that he and his wife could take the boy. So they called a court. And unexpectedly, William Dixon shows up. And as they pass the vote, it's a split. Because William Dixon's bravery is well recognized. So they turn it over to each of them to give testimony to themselves why they should take the boy. And Mr. Lovett gave a very eloquent speech. He talked about how he and his wife wanted a child but didn't have one. That they had the wealth to take care of the boy. He had the best education. He had the best upbringing. They would make sure he was in church every Sunday. And William Dixon, he's unmarried He lives alone. He's pretty reclusive from society overall. And he closed his statements. The judge looked over and called old Will up. And Will came up into the front. And he didn't know what to say. And he's pretty reclusive and he has the eyes of the courtroom and all the gathering town bearing down on him. And he asked himself, why am I? What can I do? What do I have to offer? And so he turned to go until he saw the eyes of the little boy. And the eyes of the little boy had made their choice. And it wasn't love it. And so with no words to express, William Dixon just unwrapped his hands. And he showed them to the judge. And the courtroom exploded. There was no dry eyes in the room. People cheered and they hollered. And I love what what the article wrote. It said there was something in the sight of that scarred hand which appealed to their sense of justice and was more powerful than all of James Lovett's well grounded reasoning. Will was elected by a large majority. And later, the judge told the newspaper Dixon certainly has a claim on the child by reason of what he suffered for it. A new era began for the man. And the little boy. And every day, it seemed like the boy came and he wanted to hear the story. Tell me the story about how you saved me. Tell me the story about how you got me just by showing your hands. And their conversation would go something like this. After each time, the boy would ask, I'll never be the Lovett's little boy, will I, Daddy? No, my son, you're mine. And no one will take me away from you. You'd just show them your hand like you did when I was little. And they'd know that it was you that pulled me out of the fire. And that I was your little boy, right? That's right, my son. You're mine. And little Dickie, the little boy, would pick up the scarred hand and shower it with kisses. All of us are in a prison of our own sin. And the flames are on the other side of the wall. But none of us had the little innocence of that boy. We stood accused by witnesses and by evidence. And there are some of us in here right now. I beg you to throw off your self-righteousness. Get rid of your desire to rule your own life. Surrender to the man that ran past all the idols that you've been looking to if you just cry out to him. And at your trial, his scars will be all it takes to send the angels into roaring applause for another of God's children to have been atoned for and redeemed. And maybe you can spend the rest of your life having a conversation like this. I'll never be lost again, right, daddy? No, my son. No, my daughter. You're mine. And, And sin and death you will never have power over me, right? You just, you just showed the accuser your hands, that you pulled me out of the fire and that I'm yours, right? That's right, my son. That's right, my daughter. You are mine. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. Thank you for your scarred hands. Thank you for every heart that you are turning towards you. Thank you for the witnesses, that we can rejoice, that we have an overwhelming chorus pointing the way to you. Thank you for the diagnosis as a good doctor that calls out our filthy hearts. Oh Lord, that we would turn so that we might be saved. Lord, I pray for everyone in here right now that is willfully blind, that you will penetrate the darkness, that you will peel the scales from their eyes, And Lord, for everyone in here who has called on you as their Lord, let us return to the joy of our salvation. May your gospel ignite us. May your gospel inspire us. Lord, in in some sort of a spiritual metaphorical way, let us pick up your hands and shower them with kisses. Let it move us to worship. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. We love you, Lord. And we surrender. Our hearts to you in Jesus' name, amen.